0: Morning. Good morning. Before we get started here this morning, just a couple of uh, quick announcements. Next Sunday, October 3rd, uh, we are going to have an important, a very important member meeting right after the Sunday gathering. So the way that it's going to work is right after the Sunday gathering, there's going to be pizza out in the foyer area, and you're welcome to go out there, grab some pizza right after the service, and then come on back inside and, uh, and we'll have an important meeting. And what we're going to be doing is talking a little bit about um, Care Portal, which is under this umbrella of, um, of uh, Coalition of Care. And we're going to be launching Care Portal, and it's going to affect uh, our, our mercy ministry, but it's also going to be integrated into group life. And so uh, we're going to be bringing in some a speaker that uh, is going to share a little bit about how Care Portal works and what it is and uh, give you guys the opportunity to kind of uh, get, a, get an idea about how, how it's all going to work. So we invite you guys into uh, next Sunday, October 3rd, right after the service, there'll be pizza. Come on back inside and uh, we'll discuss that. Uh, also, next Monday is the men's gathering. Uh, so that's going to be Monday, October 4th. We meet here at 7:30 p.m. and all men uh, are invited into that. Uh, the women just gathered, I think it was this past Monday, uh, and they meet every third Monday of the month. So men meet on the first Monday of the month, and women meet on the third Monday of the month. And then lastly, uh, as you came in this morning, you may have seen a print-off of a calendar. Did you guys see that? Get, get that print off of the calendar. What we're going to be doing as a church, uh, and this is a rhythm uh, that uh, staff, and in particular Brad, has, Brad and I think Kristen have really kind of worked together with, is to roll out a church calendar so that way you guys can see uh, a month in advance the events that are coming up. And so uh, if you don't have that church calendar, um, there's going to be, I think, a copy of it on the app. So you can go to the app and you can download uh, the calendar there, and then you can also get a physical like sheet to put on your fridge or something like that. That's going to be at the Connect table, and I think there was also uh, a designated spot out in the foyer um, this morning for you guys to grab a copy of that calendar uh, for the month of October coming up, okay? So those are the announcements here uh, for this morning. If you have any questions for that, you can come talk to me, anybody else on staff, or just go to the Connect table and they'll be able to hook you guys up, Okay. We are continuing on with our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to be in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. So, uh, what we do here at the Oaks is we typically stand out of respect for God's word. uh, And so, if you could please stand with me for the reading of God's word, Uh, it will be on screen. But again, it's Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 if you've brought your own Bibles. Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. And like I said, it will also be on screen. And this is what the author of Hebrews writes beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, but it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord you can be seated. So as Pastor Matt uh, explained last week, the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And they have now been struggling through their faith for 5, 10, 20, 30 years maybe. And they're, they're facing a lot of discouragement and persecution. Um, they're struggling in their faith, their lives are filled with trouble, and some of them have begun to, to be tempted to go back into the Jewish community and kind of integrate back into the world from which they came. So on one hand, they believed in Jesus, but on the other hand, they felt like outcasts in the world. The Jewish community, the Roman community had kind of cast these Christians out of society, and they felt like The tension was too much. Maybe they should integrate back into the world. And in that regards, I actually think that these people aren't that much different from us. Like when I look out here, I see people who, for the most part, for most of us, are first generation Christians. A lot of first generation Christians here uh, who have been Christians for maybe one year, two year, maybe five years, maybe 10. And maybe there's just a handful of us here that have probably been Christians for longer than maybe 20 years. And so in that regards, they're very similar to us. And I also think that as I look out here, for a lot of us, uh, the rose-colored glasses that we had when we first became Christians, when it was like, oh, Jesus is going to solve everything. He's going to make our lives like perfect as we define it, right? And, and some of that has worn off, and we're a little bit more banged up from life, a little bit more weary, a little bit more tired. We've experienced heartache. We've experienced pain, suffering, and trouble. And the world has this siren call, a way of beckoning us, right? Maybe we feel this tension inside of us, a way of saying, go back to the world from which you came, right? This didn't solve all of your problems. Go back to the world from which you came, and so last week, if you remember, Pastor Matt asked us to take inventory of where we are at. What do we find ourselves kind of gravitating towards? Where are we drifting? What do we find ourselves drifting towards? Uh, where are we at? And to not judge it, right? To just take inventory of where we are at. And if last week was taking inventory of where are we at and where, what, do we, what do we kind of naturally gravitate and drift towards, this week is asking us the question, is asking the question where will that take us? That drift, does it take us to life? Does it take us to death? How is that different than maybe what Jesus is asking us to do, which is to follow him? And so we're going to kind of compare those two things. Now, in order for us to, to fully appreciate uh, The Hebrew text or this text here today in Hebrews, we have to have a little bit of, um, understand a little bit of the Jewish historical uh, and cultural um, understanding that they had. This is kind of something that we're probably going to have to do every week in the book of Hebrews because it's so rich, full of this Jewish cultural language. Uh, And so I want to just quickly hit on a couple of things. One thing is in verse 17, I just kind of want to express and explain a little bit about verse 17, uh, which says, Therefore He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. It's like, what's that? In the service of God to make propitiation. What's that? For the sins of of the people. So what is propitiation? You're like, I've never seen that word before. I don't know what that means. Okay, so propitiation is the act of, of paying the penalty for something. It's the act of paying the penalty for something. So think of it in a legal term, in a legal sense. Like if you were to go out today out on central and drive and central speed limit is 35 miles an hour. Okay. And let's say you, you get on central, you're heading towards 75 and you're doing 50 on central and you get pulled over. You're probably going to get a ticket and the ticket will be, I don't know, for $100, $150. And you will have to then go take that ticket down to the Middletown City Building, and you will have to pay the penalty for that ticket. That is propitiation. You are paying, the act of paying the penalty for something that you have done. That is what propitiation is. It's the act of paying for the fee or the fine or the penalty or the consequence that you are owed. And then secondly, we see this idea of a high priest. And maybe you're asking yourself, I don't know what the high priest is. And the high priest uh, was the individual who had the unique privilege to go into the innermost part of the temple uh, once a year. It wasn't a once once and for all kind of deal. It was every year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. He alone could enter, no one else Only the high priest. And the high priest would go into uh, the, the innermost part of the temple and would make a sacrifice on behalf of all of the people. He was the only one that could do that. And so what Hebrews is saying here then in that verse 17 is that Jesus became the true and greater high priest. And instead of doing a yearly sacrifice, Jesus went and made a sacrifice once and for all. He, paid the propiti- he, he, he was the propitiation. He paid the penalty for sin, and he did it. He's the, the true and greater high priest because he doesn't have to continually go and make a sacrifice. He did it once and for all. But the problem, right, is that the, the penalty that was owed wasn't a monetary fine. It required life. It required life. The, the, the payment for sin is death. And so what Jesus did was he went into the Holy of Holies, he was the presence of God, and he paid the penalty. He was the high priest and he paid the penalty uh, with his own life, willingly giving it up for us. So essentially this is the gospel and it's being framed in this Jewish linguistic and cultural way that they could understand. It's framed in the context of the Jewish culture so that these Jewish Christians Understood what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is living the life that we should have lived, He's dying the death that we should have uh, died, He's paying the price that we should have paid, and then he's doing all of this in the Incarnation, meaning, as, as we'll see here in the text, that Jesus is fully God, fully God and fully human. He's flesh on flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. And so he can act as the high priest. He can act as the representative for all of us because he was not just fully God, but fully human. And he relates to us, it says, in our temptation and suffering because he is uh, fully human. And then the last thing that I think um, would help us kind of fully appreciate this text is uh, he says, it is said, it is testified somewhere And you're like, what is he talking about when he says it is testified somewhere? It's actually a reference back to Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So that's hearkening back to Psalm 8. And so with that understanding, with that kind of framework, I just wanted to take a minute to kind of talk about those things so that we could have a a proper context as we dive in here to uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. And the the theme of our text today in Hebrews uh, chapter 2 is this. Jesus gets involved in our trouble. Jesus gets involved in our trouble and helps us find our way to where we are going. Jesus gets involved in our trouble and helps us find our way to where we are going. In the 1960s, I think it was in 1964, uh, there was a murder outside of a large uh, apartment complex and building. It was the murder of... uh, Kitty Genevas, Catherine Genevas. She was a 28-year-old bartender who was coming home late at night, uh, getting off of her shift at the bar, and as she was coming up to the front entrance of her apartment complex, a man jumped out of the shadows and began to attack her, and he had a knife and he actually stabbed her. And so she began to scream, she began to yell and scream and cry out for help. And it was, of course, in the middle of the night. And so people are kind of waking up. They're hearing her cries. And so the lights on the apartment complex begin to come on. And there's people that are looking out of their windows, looking down at the street, seeing her being attacked. And uh, uh, detectives later discovered that over 30 people, over 30 people had either seen or heard her cries for help. Uh, but none of them came down to help. And in fact, only like a couple of them. I think out of the more than 30, there were only two recorded individuals that even bothered to try to call the police. But none of them came down. None of them got involved. Uh, and one of the, uh, the, the New York Times did a, a whole article on this, and they interviewed one individual and asked them, why didn't you get involved? And they essentially said, I, I, it was none of my business. I didn't want to get involved what was I going to do? You know, it, it was dangerous. I, I would have also been in a vulnerable position if I had gotten involved with this person. So when the lights come on and the people begin to look out, the man initially retreated into the, back into the shadows. She continued to call for help, continued to cry out. But after several minutes of nobody coming to her rescue, uh, he came back and he killed her, took her, uh, wallet, and I think he got like a total of like $39, and then he ran off into the night. And uh, And so this bystander effect uh, has now become known as the Geneva Syndrome, where somebody can witness, where it's, there's something dark in our human nature where we, where we can witness someone in tremendous need and tremendous suffering and tremendous danger, and we don't want to get involved because of the vulnerability that it puts us in, of of uh, the place that it could put us in. Well, here's the thing. Jesus has heard our screams. He sees our trouble. And He doesn't just look down from heaven and say, oh man, that really stinks. I'm sorry for that person down there. No. Jesus comes down and He makes Himself vulnerable for us at the cost of of his own life. Jesus gets involved. He is not some kind of high God or high king looking down from his tower and saying, who are they? Who are they? No, he comes down and he intervenes. Jesus gets involved in our trouble and he helps us find our way to where we are going. Now, what, it, what does it mean when we say that Jesus gets involved in our trouble? In verse 7, it says you have made him a little lower you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor this he's talking about us putting everything in subjection under his feet now in putting everything in subjection to him he left nothing outside his control but he says at present we do not see everything in subjection to him in other words Humans were given a privileged position, crowned with glory and honor. The world in complete subjection to our authority. Nothing outside of our control. But he says at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. What happened? What happened? Sin happened. We forfeited our glory and honor. We forfeited our authority over to sin. And so now, as we try to cultivate things, good things, in the world, the world fights back against us because of the curse. So thorns overtake our crops. Disease overtakes our healthy bodies. Wars overtake peace. And so what has happened is, in our sin, we have introduced and brought into the world trouble. We created a world that's a mess. I mean, is there really anybody here that would look out into the world? Yes, there's beauty in the world, but is there any one of us here that today would look at the world and say, everything looks good to me, right? No, we would look at the world and say, it's a mess. And in fact, a lot of us come in here and a lot of us are dealing with like the trauma and anxiety of the world being a total wreck and mess for the past like two years, Right? There's, we're, we come in here today like full of this tension in our, in our minds and in our bodies because of how messed up the world is. It's trouble. The world is trouble. And Jesus enters our trouble. He hears our screams. We see in verse 9, the writer of Hebrews says, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now what does the author say? of Hebrews mean when he says that Jesus is made a little lower than the angels? Is he saying that Jesus isn't God? That's not what he's saying. Notice that the language that he's using is the same language that he uses to describe us, right? That we are a little lower than the angels. He says that Jesus comes and Jesus for a little while is made lower than the angels. What does he mean? Well, not that Jesus isn't fully God, He is fully God. But what he's saying saying is is that Jesus has become human like us. Jesus has become the incarnation. He has become human. He is a God that is not detached from our problems. He is born of flesh and blood into the troubled world where we exist. He hears our cries and he intervenes. Jesus gets involved in our trouble. In verse 9, we see him say, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, also like us, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now this is an interesting word when he says taste death for everyone. This isn't the idea that he sampled it. It's the idea that he consumed it all. He consumed it all right? And so like one of the things that happens in my house is uh, my wife will occasionally go to the store and she'll get a treat for the kids. It's called cereal, right? Cereal, I mean, let's be real. Cereal is not a healthy uh, breakfast choice. It's sugary. It's full of carbohydrates. Uh, Me and the kids love it. And so what will often happen is my wife will go out and she'll buy the cereal and she'll say, this is for the kids, right? This is only for the kids. And, uh, and I'll say, okay, it's only for the kids. And then everybody goes to bed at night and I go get the biggest bowl I can possibly find. And I dump in, and I've done this before, dump in like half of the box of cereal and sit there and I'm eating it, you know, and enjoying myself. And then I'm like, you know what? Another bowl wouldn't be so bad. So I go back and I, and I, and I, and I taste, what I've done is I've tasted the cereal on behalf of the whole family. I've consumed it all, Okay. I've consumed it. And so that's that's the kind of language that's being used here, okay? This idea of that Jesus has tasted, but it's not just like he sampled it, it's that he's consumed death for all of us. So Jesus doesn't just call for help, he is the help. Sin and death was coming for us to take the penalty that was owed. And Jesus paid the price for us with his own life and death in our place. But there was a temptation for these Jewish Christians, right, to abandon faith or try to maybe secretly hold on to faith and then integrate back into their previous religion and culture. And I think in our society, um, the more likely thing for us isn't to necessarily go gravitate back towards another religion. Like, so for example, I don't think anybody here is thinking, you know what, man, it's this Christian walk is hard and I'm experiencing a lot of Trials and tribulation and suffering. I think I'm going to go try on a new kind of religion. It's not typically like where we end up at. But what we do experience is hey, I've become a Christian. I'm experiencing a lot of, I continue to experience a lot of pain, a lot of heartache. Maybe I should leave this and go back to the life that I knew. Go back into the world from which I came. Right? We're we're tempted to towards a kind of secularization. I would call it secular religion. So we may not be going to another religion, per se, to save us, but maybe we go to politics to save us. We begin to kind of really get involved because that's the way in which we feel like we're going to thrive and come alive. So we get involved in politics, or we go to money to solve our problems, or we go to power or we go to relationships, or we go to status, or we go to career, or we go to education. I don't know what it is, but you fill in the blank. There are things that we go back into in the secular world and where we say to ourselves, if I can just get this, if I can just get this, then I'll be okay. This Christianity thing over here didn't work out or it's not working out. And I still kind of want to dabble in it. But if I can just go get this in addition to faith, if I can get this, then I'll be okay. And so we took inventory last week. I hope you did. I hope we took inventory as to what we're putting our hopes and dreams in, what we're gravitating towards, what we're drifting towards. And it's essentially answering the question of this. This is what we were doing last week. This is the question that we were answering without knowing it when we take inventory of how we're drifting. We're answering this question. What is it you think you need to come alive. What is it that your heart is saying you need in order to become alive? And what the text here says is that there's this fear of death that has kind of hovered over all of us and enslaved us. And it's this fear of death that's driving all of society. Everything we do is religion. Everything we do is trying to answer this question, how do we become fully alive? What am I pursuing? That's what all people are doing. Every act that they're doing, is, is, is they're, they're, we're enslaved to this idea that we are going to die, and therefore I'm going to ask myself the question, what do I need? What do I think I need? What is my heart saying to me on how I can come alive? And so we took inventory last week, and as I took inventory, a couple of things got highlighted for me personally, and I'll share those with you. When I answer the question, what do I find myself drifting towards? What do I feel like I personally need to, to come fully alive? What are kind of the secular religions that I'm tempted to go back into? And for me, the first one that I came up with was shiny gadget syndrome. Anybody else have shiny gadget syndrome, right? This is where uh, when Apple, for example, like this last week, announces all of these cool new products. And I say to myself, that is what I need. If I have this new toy, this new shiny gadget, ah, I'm going to feel alive. I'm going to come alive. And so for me, this past Friday, even while preparing this sermon, right, uh, Apple announces the new iPhone. And so initially I was kind of like, eh, I don't need that, right? I'm preparing this sermon. I'm going to reject that. And then other worshipers of this church of Apple, right, uh, begin to send me pictures and video of how great it is, singing the, pra- singing the praises, right? There's liturgy and, and secularism, singing the praises of this new God that I need. And so I, uh, on Friday afternoon, kind of late in the afternoon, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to cut out from work a little early, and I'm going to drive down to Apple, and I'm going to get myself the new iPhone 13. Yes. Okay, so, I, uh, so Pastor Clay was kind enough. He's like, hey, I, I want to hang out with you. We'll, we'll t- we can talk on our way down. We'll talk on our way back. So it was great. So Pastor Clay and I, were, we drive down to Cincinnati, and we get in line with all of the other worshipers. I mean, Apple fanboys and girls, right? Uh, we get in line with them, and uh, and we get up, and then I make my purchase, and they're giving me the phone. And as we're there, Pastor Clay leans over, and unprovoked, he says something that was actually pretty profound. He said, "This is a really nice church," and it, that's a good joke. It's a good, but it's true, right? It's true. And there's temples all over America. There's Apple stores where we go and we worship. There's football stadiums that are going to fill up today. It's a temple and people are going to come in, and they're going to tithe their money, and they're going to sing the praises, and there's a liturgy. And so I have, that's that's what I find myself drifting towards, shiny gadget syndrome. And for me, I also uh, struggle with another another kind of idol, another secular religion that the world would affirm, and possibly all of us would affirm. And it's this, uh, the religion of the perfect marriage. Now, when I say, oh, I, yeah, I, I have this religion of the perfect marriage, like I want to have the perfect marriage, you may at first kind of scoff at that. It's kind of like when, when you go and you, get, you take an interview for a position and they say, what is your greatest weakness? And you say, well, I just care too much, right? I just, I just care so much. And it sounds, it's, it's, a, it's a cop-out, right? It's, it's not a real answer. Um, my greatest weakness is I care too much. And so it's, it can sound like that when it's like, what is one of my idols? And I say, "Oh, the, the, one of my idols is, is the, the idol of the perfect marriage. So it can sound like a, like a cop-out, but it's not, it's actually a terrible religion. I, I think to myself, if my married life is good, then everything will be okay, right? I'm jaded about the rest of the world on outside of my house. I'm jaded about that. But if I can just have the perfect marriage. If Amber and I can have a great emotional and intellectual and physical relationship with each other, then everything else will be okay. That's all I need. Um, if we just have that, then I'll be okay. Um, I was uh, reminded of of how, uh, that, how that's such a terrible and false religion. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were sitting down as a family to have dinner together. And uh, you know, everybody kind of gathers at the table, and my kids began to, to fight with each other, just about, you know, trivial, trivial things. And then they began to complain about the food, and then they began to complain uh, they complained to Amber about the food, complain to me about school and how they hate school, and they don't want to go back. And I don't know if you've ever seen this SNL skit where it's like the family gathered at the table, and it's Will Ferrell. I don't know if you, have you guys seen this. It's Will Ferrell. The family's like all fighting, and they're all at each other's throats. And all of a sudden, the dad explodes. He's like, I drive a Dodge Stratus. People fear me. You know, like trying to like whip the family like into into his authority. And so I'm sitting there at the dinner table just watching all of this chaos unfold in front of me. And I literally laughed out loud and then said to everybody, I drive a Dodge Stratus. And they're like looking at me like, what in the world is he talking about, right? But it it exposed to me this false religion that I have, right? Uh, That I heap these massive expectations on my wife and on my kids, which they can never fulfill. And then I'm left disappointed, depressed, tired, frustrated that this isn't meeting my needs. So I project then shame onto my wife for not measuring up. And I crush her with this religion of the perfect marriage. And here's the thing. All of our religions, whether it's shiny gadget syndrome or whether it's the the perfect marriage or whatever it is for you, whatever it is for you, it's a false secular religion. And I think that's actually what we're tempted to go back into. We're not tempted to go back into another religion, but we are tempted to go back into another religion, a kind of secular religion that the world affirms. What are we drifting towards? That's essentially our inner being trying to answer, if I can just get this, and you fill in the blank with whatever this is, then I will be fully alive. For one more day, I'll be able to avoid the reality of death and I'll be able to feel fully alive. But in Christian faith, we're not really given a religion. Right? God doesn't say, here's the religion, and if you do these things, then you'll be okay. Okay. And if you avoid these things, then you'll be okay. God doesn't really call us and give us, call us into or give us a religion. He gives us a person. He gives us a person, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just send for help. He is the help. He is our high priest who makes payment, propitiation on our behalf with himself, his own body. So Jesus gets involved in our trouble. That's how Jesus gets involved in our trouble. And I also said at the beginning that he helps us find our way to where we are going. Jesus gets involved and then helps us find our way. How does he help us find our way? He does two things according to this text. I don't think that this is necessarily totally comprehensive, but here in Hebrews he gives us at least two things that Jesus does to help us find our way. The first is that he becomes our brother. This is an extension of the doctrine of adoption right if we are brothers and sisters if god is our father and if jesus has a, has god the father then that now means that we are his brother and sisters brothers and sisters and jesus calls himself our brother so it's it's adoption he becomes our brother that's the first way and we'll we'll get into that and then the next way is he goes before us as an older brother as an older brother he goes before us and paves the way. He blazes the trail on our behalf. So he becomes our brother. Remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis? Cain and Abel, the first two brothers. And uh, without getting into it a whole lot as to why and what was going on, perhaps you remember that Cain murders his brother Abel. And he says to God, when God confronts him about his murder, he says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to hold my younger brother's hand? Am I supposed to take care of him? And he's kind of saying this you know, in rebellion against what God is saying to him. But the implied response is, yes. Yes, you're the older brother. You are supposed to be your brother's keeper. And so we see here that Jesus is essentially saying, I am your older brother and I am my brother's keeper. He says in verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will uh, sing your praise. Now the key here is when it says in verse 11 that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And maybe you're saying, well, wait a second, I'm a sister. So the way that he, that language works in most, uh, it doesn't work this way in English, but it works this way in a lot of other countries is the way in which the masculine form is often used in a plural way. So for example, if I want to talk about both uh, male and female children in Spanish, I would say the word niños, which is a masculine form, okay? So that's what's happening here. When it says he calls that Jesus calls us brothers, p- perhaps a more... Uh, contextual way of saying that in English would be Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters he calls us his siblings and what it's saying here is that Jesus is saying I will publicly identify with you I am not ashamed of you God the father has adopted you into this family and therefore I am your brother and this is actually very very profound and we should really really uh latch on to this like right? people identify with gods gods never identify with the people that worship them let alone saying a god saying you are my family you are my brother what god relates to his subjects in that way and yet here's Jesus saying I am God and I'm fully human and therefore, I can relate to you in a way that no other God can. I am your brother. The Jewish people didn't really have the equivalent of a resume, right? We have resumes. When we are trying to recommend ourselves to a uh, job, we put together our resume, or and we submit that. That is not how the Jewish people uh, did business back in the day. If they wanted to recommend themselves, they used a lineage, or a genealogy. They would submit their family name. That's what carried weight, was the family name. They understood, and I think modern psychology is beginning to understand, uh, that mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and all of our family, kind of they live inside of our bones. There's a story in our DNA, right? It's not just our environment that forms us but it's our, our lineage, it's our genealogy that forms us. The Jewish uh, community understood this, so if you wanted to recommend yourself, you didn't give a resume, you gave a genealogy. Uh, but historians have also found, interestingly enough, that um, families would often erase the names of the family members that, were, that had shamed them, that had embarrassed them. We do the same thing with our resume too, Right? Like, we take our, our resume, we kind of doctor it a little bit. Like, oh, this, th- here's all the highlights, here's the good stuff, and then I'm going to bury the stuff that I don't want you to catch, that I don't want you to see, because I'm trying to recommend myself. Well, the Hebrew people did that with their lineage and genealogy. Here's my genealogy. And it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I noticed that Uncle Joe is missing from, you know, from, from the lineage, because maybe Uncle Joe did something that was shameful, so we're going to bury that, we're going to hide that. That's how resumes work. That's how their resumes worked. That's how their lineage and genealogy worked. And so it's absolutely shocking then when we get to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, in the very first chapter and we see Jesus give us his lineage, give us his genealogy. It's absolutely shocking because in, G- in Jesus' resume, his G- genealogy, we see murderers, we see people of low status, we see... Foreigners, immigrants, women, because women were of low status. We see prostitutes, we see adulterers. Again, people of of, uh, low education and people in poverty of low status. Jesus proudly places them in his genealogy. He's not ashamed. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, to call you his brothers and sisters. Listen, you can be a part of the family of God. Amen? I don't care where you come from. You can be part of the family of God. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. It doesn't matter what you've done. He's not going to erase you from his lineage, from his genealogy. We have a brother. Who happens to be the great, the great high priest. And he isn't ashamed of me or you. And he goes to God as a big brother, as a high priest, and he makes everything right. You know, it's really hard in this life to find your way, to make your way through life without a family. Go ask anybody who's an orphan. Having a family is a kind of foundation for the rest of life um, to build on. And so Jesus invites us in to become members of his family, to be our brother, and he proudly identifies with us. So that's the foundation. We've got to get that. Secondly, he goes before us. As a big brother, he blazes the trail, and he goes before us, and he helps us. It says in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he's gone before us and conquered death. And then it says, and he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he has gone before us and freed us. And then in verse 16, this is what it says about our brother Jesus. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's helping us. He's helping you. For for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he's gone before us, conquered death, conquered sin. He's gone before us in suffering and temptation. He has gone before us and is forging the way to heaven, to the kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 31.8. This is the nature of God, by the way. We see this all throughout scripture. In Deuteronomy 31, eight, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear and be dismayed. Exodus 13, verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night. Isaiah 45, verse 2. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. C.S. Lewis wrote that Jesus has punched a hole through sin and is showing us the way out. He says, a cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain or brother, king, high priest inside. He's gone into the future. He's secured it for you. It's a world under our feet, a world without shame, fear, and guilt. It's a world where our weariness gives way to joy where anxiety gives way to rest it's the it's the world the way it was supposed to be he has gone ahead of us and done that and then in verse 15 it says that he will quote deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery the exhaustion that you feel today as you come in here today and you're tired you're exhausted the weariness you endure the jadedness the cynicism the doubts, the temptations to go back into another world, the old world, the way of doing things. These are the things that we experience as the world pushes back against us. But if you recall, Jesus, Jesus does something really interesting with his disciples. Um, Jesus has this engagement with his disciples where a bunch of people had abandoned Jesus Jesus like preached a hard message and a bunch of people left. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, are you guys going to abandon me as well? Are you going to leave as well? And what do they say? They say, Jesus, we're not going to do that. You have the words of life. And so what's happening inside of us is we're looking for life. What is going to bring us life? And so we're tempted to go back into a world that is not going to bring us life. It's going to lead to death. All of these things that we drift towards lead to death. And so Jesus is saying, don't follow them. Follow me. Be my disciples. My way, if you follow me, and I'll walk with you through this, my way leads to life. And Jesus essentially then also calls all of his disciples to leave something. There's an invitation to leave something in order to follow him. He does this with all of his disciples, and I think he's doing it with us here today. If you recall, Jesus says to to one uh, individual, "'Leave your nets, leave your nets, and come and follow me.'" He says to the rich man, "'Give all that you have to the poor, and come and follow me.'" let the dead bury the dead and come and follow me. Leave father and mother and come and follow me. This is what Jesus continually did with all of his disciples. Leave this world behind. Leave this religion, secular religion, actual religion, whatever. Leave it behind and come and follow me. He did this with all of his disciples to leave their money, their power, their influence, their families, their career, their sin. Not necessarily always bad things, but to leave it behind because it doesn't lead to life and to come and follow him. And so my invitation, my question, the punchline of this sermon, if you will, today is to ask yourself this important question. As you took inventory last week and you said, what am I drifting towards? And maybe you look at that and say, you know what? That does not lead to life. If you were to imagine yourself today standing before Jesus expressing like so many have and so many did, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. And Jesus in typical fashion to Jesus says to you, "Leave this behind." What does Jesus ask you to leave behind? This morning, as you're you're invited to say as you stand before Jesus and say, "I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple." What does Jesus ask you to leave behind? It's time for communion. We take this every week. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus paved the way, but then also did something for us so that we don't have to go and follow him into death. We don't have to follow Jesus into, into the spiritual death that he experienced because it says in the scriptures that his body was broken for us. His body was broken for us. And it says in the scriptures that his blood was shed for us. And so every week we take communion as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. That he paved the way, but he also covered the way so that we don't have to experience spiritual death. And so in a moment, the band is going to come and play. And if you are a Christian... You are invited to come forward and to take a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or juice as your conscience permits and, um, and to remember what Jesus has done to pave the way for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you sent Jesus fully God, fully man, God incarnate, to be our high priest, to be our king, to be our captain, to be our brother, to relate to us. I'm thankful that he has come and gotten involved in our trouble and is even here today showing us the way, calling us out of the things that lead to death and inviting us to follow him towards life. Lord, I have so many idols, so many things in the world that call me back into my secular religions. It's hard. I pray that uh, by the Spirit's strength that you would embolden me and embolden everyone here to continue to be steadfast, knowing that we are meant for better things, that you have something better in store for us in eternity. We thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.